Today's episode of Insufficient Facts is brought to you by Super Ordinary, an audio drama about a young girl who discovers she has superpowers. There's only one problem. They're connected to her panic attacks. Stick around at the end of the episode for a sneak peek of the show. Welcome back to our podcast, Insufficient Facts. We're happy to have you here with us today. Just as a reminder as to who you're with, I am Christiane. I'm Raquel. And I'm Kyle. We have some pretty fantastic segments lined up for you today, so I'm excited to share some cool science with you. Um, Just to give you the lowdown on our our structure for the day, uh, we're going to start out with our recent headlines talking to you about the economic cost, kind of the cost of carbon pollution or pollution in general. Spoiler alert, it's expensive. Well, it depends who you ask, right? (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, And then we are going to kind of transition from that into our science fiction versus science fact segment, which I'll be leading us through, I think, as usual. That tends to be my favorite segment. It's one of my favorites, too. Yeah, Yeah. I like talking about it. Um, So I'll go off a little bit about uh, the movie The Day After Tomorrow, which is... uh, Got get some good good things right, some good details right. Also, she's about to snap. Uh, <laughs> Go off. Not too hard. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll we'll save that for next episode. Um, but uh, it also gets some things quite wrong. So if you can't tell, our our theme for the episode is climate change. Um, some climate change science for you. So the day after tomorrow, gets some some climate change info right and gets some a little a little dramatized, a little melodramatic. So we'll talk about that. And then we're going to go into another favorite segment of mine, our Bizarre Science segment, which is going to be led by our wonderful Raquel. And she's going to tell us about some some interesting um, lab science that's yeah. happening. Laboratory Maybe meat. Yum. Alternatives to meat. Uh, if you don't know, spoiler alert, meat, also the production of meat uh, leads to a lot of carbon emissions and, and gas greenhouse gas emissions. So there's some alternatives out there that are kind of weird, uh, but we'll tell you a little bit more about those. And then finally, um, Kyle is going to lead us through a classics segment to kind of understand the history of, of our knowledge about climate change. How long have we really known that greenhouse gas emissions are, are going to impact and change our climate? Well, Spoiler alert. Quite a long time. We've known it forever. I'm spoiling everything for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, that's why we're hoping to kind of hook you in and keep you keep you tuned in. And then, as usual, we'll end off our our journey today with a little insight into our lives as grad students. Um, we'll tell you what's going on with our lives and our weeks and our schedules and what's stressing us out and what makes us happy. So stay tuned. Okay, so let's get started with our recent headlines segment. Um, so. Essentially, we're going to talk to you about our the social cost of carbon. So, there's been this has been in the news a little bit recently for a number of reasons. One is um, not too long ago the Nobel prizes were given out, right? For well, first we should say what the social cost of carbon is. Yes, maybe. yeah. Why don't you define it for us, Kyle? The so- what what the does so- this what does this mean? So for every like ton of carbon that goes into the atmosphere, it changes the environment and the climate a little bit. And this change can come at a cost. So if you can't grow as much barley to make beer, your beer goes up and that comes out of the consumer's dollar. Mm -hmm. So that is the social cost of carbon. It could also mean how are people displaced if there's weird weather patterns. It's just sort of a nice number that summarizes how much we're effing up the earth. Yep. So is it a per... So what is the actual cost? Like what's the units of cost here? What are we talking about? Is it like a... 
in my lifetime, I will have to spend this much on on due to climate change that I wouldn't have had to? Or what word are we talking about in terms of monetary value here? I, I, so for each person, if you ask someone in 2010, it would be $1,400 per ton of methane emitted. Farts. Right, farts. And yeah. it would be five. It would we'll be $50 per ton of CO2 mm-hmm. emitted. That was around 2010 during the Obama era. Yeah, our previous administration. Things changed a little bit, though, with our, our current administration, right? Yeah. Those numbers went down uh, quite a bit. So now um, we have a per ton cost for methane of $55 down from 1400 and uh, the per ton cost of carbon dioxide went from $50 per ton to, in some cases, as low as $1. Which is crazy because so this is just a way of saying, this is a way of the government signaling like that we don't really value how we're going to change the environment. So any policy that we design that's based off of this social cost of carbon dollar value mm-hmm. now is completely distorted because it's no longer worth Fifty dollars to someone is yeah. worth one dollar. That's less than a cup of coffee. Right. The incentive is removed to create do something. Yeah. 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 Imagine if you were given a homework assignment and it was worth a hundred points. You know? That you'd probably do that assignment because it's worth a lot of points. But right. if someone suddenly was like, This is only worth one point now, you probably wouldn't do it. You'd like go play video games with your friends, go skating. I don't yeah. know. Just do something else. Like you wouldn't worry about this assignment. So there's no more repercussion for doing that homework. Right. So the, the decrease in the cost is, is kind of bad news for um, people who are trying to l- lead the charge for technology or making changes like systematic changes um, to our infrastructure and the way that we live. Because essentially when you have a higher cost per ton of these emissions, it incentivizes businesses and um, <clears throat> scientists and things like that to to create things that are going to benefit our move away from yeah move away from doing like having more carbon emissions or more methane emissions because they now have to pay this like per ton cost there is a per ton cost but if you lower that cost then you're basically saying well if it's only one dollar per ton of carbon dioxide then i don't really care if my you know car is emitting or my plant is emitting a ton of carbon dioxide because it really isn't costing the world that much in the long run. Yeah. And so I guess this is a newsworthy because not only was the Nobel Prize awarded to the two guys who were thinking about this in a really critical and systematic way, but also the current administration is changing these numbers. And so this like horrible news cycle continues where on one hand, someone's being awarded for their hard work and then someone else is taking it away. It's a terrifying world we live in. Yeah, so not not great for those of us who are interested and kind of worried about carbon emissions. And, and the problem is, right, that, um, you know, with this, this IP, so not too long ago, again, there was this IPCC, which is the um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is staffed by a bunch of scientists around the world from many different countries. It's like all the scientists. Yeah, all the scientists. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> I'm on it, even though I study dogs, you know, (laughs) I'm kidding. But um, so essentially they released this report that, um, you know, our our goal for increasing temperatures is was to optimistically keep our increase in temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, the Paris Agreement was two degrees, wasn't it? That was the, the we yeah. could, cannot go past two degrees. Right. That was the agreement that was made is like two degrees is the absolute like ceiling. We can't let ourselves like, let the temperature increase any more than two degrees. Um, but the, the optimistic goal would be 1.5 of like 
we would really like to keep things below a 1.5 degree um, Celsius increase. But the report that came out right recently by the IPCC was basically saying that, yeah, you know, we're on track for a 1.5 degree increase in temperature from pre-industrial times, essentially, is what this marker is. So Mm -hmm. since um, before pre-industrial times or before industrial times, uh, there's been already increasing temperatures. And if the rate continues, then we'll hit that 1.5 degree Celsius increase by 2030. This is That's like, like the 10 report. years, guys. Yeah. yeah. This is the report card in the middle of the term, right? The, midterm like, evalu- the mid-quarter evaluations, yeah. It's like all we're it's trying to do is good. get a C. We're just trying to get a C. It's just just to pass this class. Yeah. And you're like, all right, I think I'm on track to get like a C, C plus. And yeah. someone comes back and like, you have a D minus. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to pass at this rate. So... Um, yeah, not, you know, if, if we really want to keep the warming to under two degrees, um, and if we really wanted to actually try and hit that marker of 1.5, we would have to really immediately make drastic changes. Um, globally. Globally, you know, in, not only in our everyday lives, but how our industry is, um, how our government is approaching things. And obviously, when you're de-incentivizing people to... Make, make changes, those changes yeah. due to a, uh, from an economic standpoint. Like that's a huge motivator for people. Is like, is this going to impact me economically or from business a business perspective? If it's going to impact you economically, then you're more motivated to make change. And so there's not really that push um, at all from our administration. In fact, recently, um, they so the EPA website has uh, been really cut down to size. Um, they have officially removed any and all pages that had anything to do with climate change from the EPA website. No way. This is new to me, actually. Yeah. So they, for a while, (laughs) they had web before, you know, they would have a a couple pages on climate change and the information on climate change. And then under our current administration, um, those pages suddenly were under construction and would be back to you soon. And that's been the way that they've been for several months. And Mm -hmm. then I think... um, Pretty recently, they were finally that page no longer exists, and it no longer says like, "Oh, this page is under construction." So there's no information now about climate change on the EPA website. But let's talk about let's shift into our science fiction versus science fact segment now. So, climate change important. There's a lot of cool information out there, but there's also a little bit of misinformation if you kind of look at how climate change has been portrayed in some popular um, media. So. What we're going to focus on today is the 2004 movie, The Day After Tomorrow. I loved this movie. <laughs> I remember seeing this movie, I think, like, definitely in theaters and maybe more than once. Um, but I haven't seen it probably since 2004. Yeah. I don't really do disaster movies. They don't. They don't do it for me. But it's too close. <laughs> it's too close to home now. It's too real. Yeah, yeah. When it was yeah. just an entertaining, you know, dramatic plot point, then it was one thing. But when it's uh, the IPCC is <laughs> releasing these kinds of reports. It's uh, a little a little close to home. It's a little scary. So walk us through this thing. Yeah. So what? Okay. The day after tomorrow. Kind of. It's now what? Fourteen years old. This movie. Just as old as my car. Um, so you know, it's maybe some of you haven't seen it. Maybe some of you have. But you'll probably remember hearing about it or seeing um, clips from it or something. But it's essentially a movie that takes place. Um, sort of in, like, the present day of, like, 2004. And it follows this paleoclimatologist. That's a long word that I'll explain in a second. A paleoclimatologist named Jack Hall. 
and that's so he's a scientist. Um, and what paleoclimatologist means as a moniker, um, paleo means old, right? And climatologist is someone who studies the climate. So basically, um, Jack Hall is someone who studies how the climate used to be, um, you know, thousands or millions of years ago. Fascinating. Yes. So it does, this job really exists, right? It totally is a real job. So there are paleoclimatologists um, working around the world. This is absolutely a profession that exists in the scientific community. And it's important, right? Because if you think about it, for, you know, to understand what ecosystems might have been like thousands or millions of years ago, an important part of that is like, what were the temperatures at the time? What was the climate like? And how, you know, how would you even begin to put that puzzle back together? Like, where do you get that kind of data or information about what the climate might have been? Mm. Obviously, there's nothing here that we can, like in our atmosphere as it is today, that would give us any clues as to what the climate might have been 10,000 years ago. But there are, and this is what he is doing, actually, at the beginning of the movie, Jack Hall, um, what you can do is you can go to the um, Antarctic and you can get these um, ice cores. So they basically drill down deep into these very old um, permanent layers of ice um, in the poles. And they pull out this long tube of ice. And they basically, in the ice, when the ice is forming, these little tiny air bubbles get trapped in the ice. And that's what they're interested in studying. So they can actually look at the air that's been trapped in the ice for thousands or millions of years and look at the composition of gases in those air bubbles and kind of recreate. And they know they also know the rate at which ice is um, formed mm-hmm. and kind of deposited onto these ice sheets. So they have a very accurate um, kind of chronological time through these ice cores. So they know if the ice core, if we're like, you know, 20 feet down the ice core, I know that that is going to be equivalent of, you know, a million years ago or something. So they know how old uh, each layer of the ice core is, and so they can study the it's air like bubbles. screenshots in time. It really is, of the climate. It totally yeah. is. Um, so this is a fantastic sort of like geology and sediment is a way to look at how um, these terrestrial landscapes or, or landscapes, you know, aquatic landscapes were back in time. You can do this with the climate, with the air bubbles trapped in ice. So... Um, Basically, Jack Hall is taking these ice cores and studying these ice cores in the Antarctic. Specifically, they actually do this. They name this place by name. So they call, um, they say that he's at the Larsen Ice Shelf. And the Larsen Ice Shelf, it's really interesting that they name this ice shelf um, in, you know, very specifically because um, it's actually made headlines quite a few times in the past couple decades for a number of reasons, but usually... It's a real location. It's a real location, yeah. It's a real ice shelf in the Antarctic on this, like, little loopy peninsula kind of... that's one fact. Good. Yes, one fact. You got that right. Two facts. He's a paleoclimatologist. Totally a real thing. And you do actually study the ice bubbles trapped in the ice cores. So they got all that right. This is all stuff that they did really well, uh, in my opinion. And they also picked the Larsen Ice Shelf, which is a really good pick, um... Again, by them, so that was a good choice because the Larsen Ice Shelf um, has been studied and for many years because it is collapsing and deteriorating in part due to climate change and warming waters and warming air uh, temperatures around this peninsula in the Antarctic. So, in this movie was released in 2004, and in 2002, a big area, a big part of this ice shelf actually collapsed. Um, and when they studied as to why it was deteriorating and collapsing, it was because there was this really, there was actually almost a three degree increase in and temperature. This is in the movie. 
Or is this real life? With the this larsen? is in real life, actually. Okay. So this is what when they studied this actual Larsen ice shelf. So it collapsed in 2002. And when they studied the collapse, they saw, well, the waters around it had really warmed and it had actually eroded the ice shelf from mm. underneath. Yeah. And, and um, its structural integrity was basically compromised. And then also the temperature, the air temperature in general, is really warmed up around that particular area mm. of um, the Antarctic. And this has all yeah. been attributed directly to climate change due to human um, factors. Yeah. So this is something that also goes into calculating the social cost of carbon, right? Mm-hmm. Is cha- water, water level changes, damages well, to property? There was a picture that I shared uh, on Twitter, I think I retweeted this, um, of these tourists recently in Venice who were taking selfies in a plaza in Venice, and there was like water up to their ankles. Wow. Because Venice is sinking. Yeah. Venice yeah. is slowly being inundated with more and more water every year, and so the locals are like... Uh, they're worried about yeah. this because, like, their their businesses are getting flooded routinely, and like, it's impacting their lives. This caused like a billion dollars of damage right. in that it, area. And it's a it's a thing that they constantly have to so deal with. That's the social cost. Of, uh, that's one potential aspect of the social cost of carbon. Right, dealing with these like now that this movie's kind of online with. Well, what about the flooding in Houston last year, or like all the hurricanes they hit? Right, and, the, and we had an unusual hurricane season um, for the past couple of years. But yeah, so they took these. The, the, there's a picture of these. People, these tourists in Venice taking selfies at a patio that's mm-hmm. flooded with water, and you're like, oh, interesting. Okay. Um, but anyway, so back to the Larsen Ice Shelf. Um, the reason you might have heard about this more recently is like 2016, 2017, a different area of the ice shelf um, had this huge crack that formed um, in, in the ice shelf, and the crack like separated a huge sheet of ice from the main part of this ice shelf. And um, it was the size of Delaware. <laughs> this like this is still in real life, guys. This yeah. is not the movie. Yeah, this is still in real life. So anyway, my my point is that their pick of the Larsen Ice Shelf is really yeah. a good a good pick. It's yeah. very cool that they actually name it by name instead of just being like, ah, oh, he was in the Antarctic somewhere and he was mm-hmm. like pulling ice cores. No, he was actually this is they did their research. They did their research. Someone was was doing their research when they kind of put in these little sprinklings of, of details, which is really nice. Um, so. Good choice in the Larson Ice Shelf. Um, where the movie starts to lose points in terms of credibility is uh, the <laughs> dramatic way in which climate very quickly changes um, or the weather very quickly changes. So essentially, um, as we follow Jack Hall, he is studying these ice cores and he's really seeing these effects of climate change. And he goes to the government and like the UN and you know the United States government. He's like, we have to we have to really be like addressing climate change. It's gonna, you know, it's changing really rapidly. And if we don't do something, like there's gonna be consequences essentially. So it sounds he's, familiar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's the uh, the canary, if you will. But no one listens to the canary mm. in the coal mine. Um, and so no one really the the <laughs> The U.S. government does not take him seriously. I think there's like a vice president that is in the movie that is notoriously kind of not if reliable. anyone is triggered right now, so am I. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, basically no one listens to him. And then he's like visiting his family in New York or something. I don't know why he's in New York, but he's in New York. And um, his family is there and like his friends and very quickly, there's this huge mega storm that forms in the Atlantic and splits off into these three huge storms. Like one goes to the east coast of the United States, one goes off into like Greenland, and the other goes to Europe or something like that. 
So there's this huge storm that's that's being formed in the Atlantic, and it's in part because like very quickly the ocean currents change and like the weather, like these systems that are really important in generating our weather, just really rapidly like turn over and switch, which is not really how that's not feasible for them to switch that quickly. These are like really long timescale things. They are changing, but much more slowly. Um, so anyway, there's this really rapid shift in in um, these currents and and things like that. So you it generates this huge storm that then you know, sweeps down onto the New York coast and it creates these storm surges that are like tsunami height waves of like several dozen feet in height and it's like flooding New York. And then the temperature drops to like negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So all the water that flooded immediately freezes. (laughs) And so it's like an ice wasteland in New York and they like are all eventually huddled in. And this is all over the span of like a few hours <laughs> that this all happens. Maybe this is how New Yorkers feel. Yeah, <laughs> in the winter. I don't know. Maybe it's and so you know, in a in a truly you know heavy-handed metaphor, they eventually find themselves sheltered away in like the New York Public Library, and they're all freezing. So to to combat the um, really drop in temperature, they start burning books in R. the library <laughs> to keep themselves warm and. Two of their party is like, I'm just going to leave now and trying to head south and get to warmer temperature. And they end up freezing to death. And you're like, oh, my God, this is really dramatic Um, and really not feasible. Right. Like that kind of intense, rapid change in our entire like global climate systems is not feasible. And for that, like the drop in temperature, the freezing, the like Arctic wasteland, none of that would really happen that quickly like it's just yeah. really over dramatized um to an extent that it almost makes it a joke unfortunately like i know in reading up on this again when i was researching it um that they did want to take this seriously like they did want to have this climate change message and like it's important and we should be addressing it but they made it like there's all these special effects of the storm and like it's so ridiculous no one would take it seriously. right yeah, yeah it kind of makes it a laughable joke unfortunately rather than um something to Real take seriously yeah. so that's kind of where they lose points is the actual climate science um that storm is just totally <laughs> unreasonable in its intensity and but mega storms are a real thing right yeah in fact when sandy hook hit uh New York City and totally flooded Manhattan. I was in Ireland at the same time, and the arm of that hurricane reached all the way to the west of Ireland. Mm -hmm. And I surfed really good waves from (laughs) that same hurricane. In Ireland. All the way in Ireland. So while people were sheltering at home from the storm, you were enjoying the storm surge all the way on the other side of the Atlantic. Silver linings. Silver linings always. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's true, actually. If you look at, um, you know, even though this really intense change in climate is not possible, there there definitely has been quite a few unusually intense hurricane seasons for the yeah. past couple of years. So this year has been really unusual. We've had a ton of storms, and a lot of them have been subtropical in origin. So they've kind of come from more the below the tropics and kind of worked their way up um, to the, our coasts, our east coasts. Right. And you had Michael that went to the pan through the panhandle of Florida. Um, and basically that was an unusual because it kind of like skirted right through kind of that opening and hit the the western side of the panhandle of Florida. And really what shocked people about Michael is it really, really increased in intensity very rapidly. So over the span of like a day or a couple of days, it went from like a minor category two all the way up to a category five. Yeah. So that was really unexpected. Um, 
And the fact that it actually hit the panhandle was really unexpected. So we have a lot more storms, a lot more Category 5 storms. So last year was one of only two years where there's been two Category 5 hurricanes that have made landfall in the United States. Um, it was Last year was one of the most expensive uh, hurricane seasons. So um, there was $282 billion in damage. So this was part of, and part of this, right, was also because of how much damage was done in, in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Um, so they had Hurricane a, Maria. Hurricane Maria was absolutely devastating for a huge swath of, of land. And, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, part of the problem is that the um, infrastructure was just not there to support such a huge hurricane, just absolutely, you know, wiping over the entirety of, of... It took them 11 months to get power back. Right. 11 months it on was, the main island. Yeah, it was, I mean, absolutely devastating for them. And there was a huge loss of life, too, um, not only in, in, partly in, in Puerto Rico, but elsewhere. But um, it was also one of the deadliest hur- hurricane seasons because in part of, of Maria. So, you know, definitely we've seen this ramping up of storms and the intensity of storms and the amount that are making landfall. So this is... A lot of this is can be attributed to you know the warming of our oceans and and climate change and things like that. So certainly there is we are changing the climate, but yeah. just not to the rapidity and um, kind of dramatized way that the day after tomorrow yeah. presents it. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. If you love science like we do, we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you gain access to exclusive bonuses we don't release anywhere else. To join, visit our website at insufficientfacts.com. Now, please enjoy the rest of today's episode. Sometimes you've heard maybe that going vegetarian or vegan is better for the environment, but but Raquel's going to tell us about this alternative, uh, this bizarre science that uh, it might blow your mind about what <laughs> what people are doing with alternatives to meat. Yeah, let's get weird with our bizarre science segment. So in this segment today, I'm Raquel. We're going to be talking about meat in a Petri dish. So let's set mm, the scene. Yeah. You're a food critic in London. You just got an email. You've been invited to taste test the world's first laboratory-grown burger. <laughs> Do you accept? Hell yeah, you yeah, accept. Yeah, I that accept. sounds awesome. <laughs> Sign me up for that, please. This actually happened in uh, 2013 in London. So basically, one of the underlying concepts behind why you would grow meat in a dish is our current agricultural methods work for us right now in terms of um, raising farm animals, livestock, to support the close to 7 billion people that are on the planet. But in the next 30 years, the population is going to increase to close to 10 billion people. And the amount of resources that we're going to need to sustain the methods that we use now to raise livestock is just its not going to work. We cannot reasonably support 100 billion land animals that we need to feed and take care of, as well as taking care of the human population as well. So one way scientists have decided to combat this is by growing meat in the laboratory mm-hmm. because meat consumption is growing faster than we can supply. And yeah, this is absolutely. a potential method to mitigate that. This, right. is, this is kind of like, it's like a simple basic physics problem, actually. Like we get all our energy from the sun. Sun energy gets turned into plant energy. But mm-hmm. then we take all of that and feed it to other animals. And then we eat those animals. 
And there's a loss of, of We're losing stuff all along yeah. the way. Yeah, yeah. Of energy. Along. So let's just grow the meat directly. Yeah. If you can't, and then yeah. no one has to suffer. Right. I think it's pretty brilliant, And honestly. then you don't have cows that are farting up a storm and producing <laughs> yeah. methane. So that's another thing. <laughs> Livestock are responsible for 18 to 50% of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, nitrous oxide, and methane. Mm-hmm. So methane is a result of enteric fermentation in terms of livestock production of methane. So, so that's what's happening. Cow farts. The gut. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they basically have this fermentation that's happening in the gut, right? They have these microbes and part of the digestion process of all this grass and hay and stuff produces a lot of methane that they then fart out into the atmosphere. And it actually contributes a huge amount of methane. One third. Yeah. Of, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, if you can just grow the actual, you know, meat in the lab. Nothing, without the farts. Without the farts and without actually killing the animals and them living in their own feces and yeah and just to chime in the methane as a greenhouse gas is 20 time 25 times more effective at keeping in heat than co2 mm-hmm. that's so, dangerous guys yeah so it's it's even worse than co2 that's um, why the social cost of carbon or for methane is higher yes yeah yeah, yeah exactly so Definitely. And, you know, then you don't have to kill the animal if you're worried yeah. about animal cruelty. Mm-hmm. We don't. And then this is also one of the things that maybe people aren't as aware of. But we we a huge amount of our cropland, um, the crops that we grow is actually grown specifically as feed for livestock. Yeah. So and large amounts of water goes to. Right. And there's a huge amount of water consumption that happens for to grow these animals um, and, and produce all of this meat. So. If you actually could use that cropland to just grow crops for directly for human consumption, that mm-hmm. would increase, you know, our productivity. Mm-hmm. And then you're not having to kill these animals and, and, you know, you don't have to worry about things like antibiotics and like disease and, and things like that. Right. If there's cows, then maybe they're just being used for dairy production or being kept as like like pets. Yeah. <laughs> People do that, too. Um, so. I think right now probably the cost of petri dish meat is still more expensive. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, in a little bit. Yeah, but, but it's good to consider that this is like a technology that we are actively. You know, it always starts as expensive, yeah. and then we find ways to refine this mm-hmm, process. Exactly. And one other point about the livestock mm. is that it is. We've heard about viruses like swine flu and um, mad cow disease. So that's another thing that. Growing your meat in the dish could help decrease the amount of is um, epidemics caused by the way livestock yep. is raised. Mm-hmm. And when you have livestock in such close quarters, mm-hmm. disease is just really mm-hmm. um, a lot more rampant than yeah. if they can, you know, graze broad pastures and things like that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about this process. So basically, scientists have been doing this, f- like the basics of this process, for a long time. It just this man, Mark Post, incredible mind. I, I just really am fascinated by this. I just love the concept. I'm sorry, I can't stop praising it. I'm not sponsored by yeah. <laughs> growing meat in the lab, guys. Yeah. I promise. What is it? The Impossible Burger? But that's all soy. That's all um, yeah. plant-based. No, they they have a... Um, it's a company, I think it's called New Harvest. Yeah, the Impossible but, um, Burger is a combination of... like vegetarian stuff that's put together in a really clever way. Mm-hmm. I think the lab-grown thing is literally like muscle yes. and yes. fat. Yeah. yeah. So what they do is they take stem cells from muscles, and what stem cells can do is they can differentiate into 
They multiple can, different types of cells. Yeah, they can. They start as this kind of. You can think about it as like it's a it's a little baby it's cell. The fetus of cells. It doesn't have a job yet. It doesn't really know what it wants to do. And then it's like, hmm, you know, I I could become muscle cell, but mm-hmm. I could also become a brain cell or maybe a skin cell. Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of potential paths. It's like when you're you're in middle school, maybe in high school, maybe you're you know you're still feeling this way in high school that you're like, oh, there's a lot of things that I could do. I'm not really sure what I want to do, but there's a lot of things I, I still could feel do. that way. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> Like now I'm a podcast host. Yeah. Like, why not? Yeah. We are all stem cells in, right. this, in this room right now. So, you know, they can kind of become all these different types of cells. They haven't decided on what their final path in life is going to be. But you can now. encourage them to become a type of cell, like right. a muscle you can cell. Foster their growth. You can say, you know what, yeah. you want to be a, this top tier athlete, you know, all these cool muscle fibers. They're ripped. That? Yeah, they're yeah. really ripped. They're really jacked. And that's really what they do. They take these cells and they stick them in nutrient rich solutions while they will differentiate mm-hmm. into muscle fibers. And this is really cute to me. I don't know why, but they grow the cells on a scaffold and they can actually stretch them so that they will be exercised. Yes, you These can't are just, well-raised cells, guys. Yeah, you can't just leave them kind of be lazy, be couch potato cells. They need, you know, their daily exercise. You need to kind of encourage them to grow and stretch and, and become really good, stretchy muscle cells. To, yeah, to be packed with nutrients. Tastier. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. like, you know, if you don't work and stretch your muscles, they will start to kind of atrophy and, exactly. and die. So that's the whole concept there is that they grow these cells up and exercise them. They and have a then training you can regime. grind them up, cook them and eat them. Yeah. So that meat patty you were invited to taste, which I hope you said yes to, <laughs> is probably going to be the most expensive piece of meat you would ever grace your taste buds with. <laughs> so the original patty from... 2013, it took two years to culture, and it was around three hundred thousand dollars to produce. <laughs> so, but that's just the first one. There's yeah. a lot of R and D. The cost will go down. Yes. And if you so, if you look up like the actual news clipping from this, it's really they're tiny little patties that they're showing that they cook. Yeah, I can imagine it's not a huge slab of meat. (laughs) It's called a slider. The actual taste testing patty was like a normal sized burger patty that you would imagine. And the food critics said that it it wasn't that far off from real meat. And theoretically, you can make it taste any way you want to. There's like no limits Mm -hmm. to what scientists could do with Mm -hmm. I mean, this is real molecular gastronomy here. Yes, truly. (laughs) I cultured this slab of meat in my kitchen for two years, and I stretched it every day. So, you know, that's actually one thing that the creator of this process is advocating for is that to mitigate the cost is that if restaurants and people do this on a smaller scale. I think this could really happen. And just I invite the listeners to look up what the first transistor looked like, you know, like the little part that makes a computer work. Oh my gosh. It was, it's huge. crude. It's like it's the size, it, it's like big. It's like yeah. bigger than both of your hands. Yeah. And that took a lot, probably was really expensive to make. Mm-hmm. It's like this first patty. Yeah. Now, I'm at, projected to now where everything has like billions and billions of transistors in it and they're cheap. They cost nothing. Mm-hmm. So it just, this comes naturally with science and technology yeah. where things start off as an expensive and glorious like adventure, mm-hmm. and then it, it kind of becomes normal. Mm-hmm. Or like the the like storage, like uh, storage devices. You yeah. know, historically the actual like per bit cost of like a thumb storage. drive for like a kilobyte or something like fifteen years ago was probably expensive. Right, it was probably not yeah. cheap, and now you can get you know sixty four gig 
you know, SD cards, micro SD cards that are tiny and, and can store, you know, quite a bit or terabyte drives that, you know, for the per actual bit cost, the per unit of storage has, has gone down dramatically. And it fits into, you know, smaller and smaller devices, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah so there's it, a lot of promise here. Yeah, and I, I think this will really happen. You know, I think the the patty will become a thing, but I, I don't know is what kind of public perception of this like lab grown yeah. meat is going to come up. Mm-hmm. So that is one thing that scientists are bracing themselves for, especially considering the mistrust of GMOs mm-hmm. that we already have. We mm-hmm. can go back to our GMOs yes. episode. Yeah, we Definitely episode. go back to that episode. And we settled the square. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. listeners, you're okay. If you haven't listened yet, go and check it out because you'll hopefully you'll feel much more comfortable making informed decisions about the food you eat after you listen to that and get some some good info. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's one thing that they are concerned about is more consumer pushback as to whether or not people would want to eat laboratory grown mm-hmm. meat. Personally, I want if you want to send me some laboratory grown meat, I'll, I'll try eat that. Yeah, yeah, I'll try it. I'll try it out. For sure. But so like what is our, our, you know, we the climate change has really made, you know, and, and how to change our daily lives has made a lot of news, you know, for those of us who are maybe millennials, for most of our lives, we've been hearing about it, but it still seems like a pretty recent thing. I mean, we're still combating it. But mm-hmm. if you actually do a deep dive into the history of, of our knowledge about climate change, it goes back quite a ways. Like quite we've had quite a bit of warning yeah. and we've ignored it for quite a while. So um, I think Kyle's going to kind of lead us through our classic segment to tell us about how much we've known and how for how long about, about the impacts of climate change. Yeah, I'm going to talk to you guys today about um, sort of classic examples of climate change science. And I just want to start with this little vignette that really kind of encapsulates how the U.S. government views climate change. (laughs) And in 2015, Oklahoma Senator Jim Einhoff entered the Senate with a snowball from outside. This is like late fall. And he says, how can global warming be real if it's snowing outside? And he throws the snowball across the Senate floor. (laughs) And so that 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 is the classic example of how our policymakers see climate change is how how is this real it's snowing outside so uh, yeah it's awful but there's misinformation yeah and and that's honestly kind of part of why we've moved from saying global warming to climate change is because people had this this misconception that that oh it means everything's warming up so i'm it's going to snow less or there's it shouldn't snow anymore and that's not what's happening and it's if you think about our our globe is a really complicated System. There's a mm-hmm. lot of inputs and outputs. There's a lot of things that contribute to our weather, our local weather patterns. Yeah, and to all these old white men in Washington, D.C. who love beer, <laughs> I invite them to look at a recent headline that projected the cost of beer in a, in a certain climate change scenarios could double or triple in price. And this is not just beer. This is the same for, like, um, chocolate, right? Cacao beans are notoriously difficult to grow. And right. The, they need a very specific climate. And same for coffee beans. A lot of our favorite indulgences are going to become more expensive because they're going to be more difficult to grow. Right, and they sorted yeah. this out because if the, like, beer comes from barley, and if it's harder to grow barley, there's less of it. So if you can grow half as much, then your beer is twice as much, and mm-hmm. it sort of projects out that way. So policymakers, please, at least for the sake of beer, do something. <laughs> 
And so just to sort of, I want to look back and see how far back the idea that we are changing the environment goes. It actually starts all the way in 300 BC. We're going in a way back machine. Way back. Time machine. And so in 300 BC, this Greek guy, Theophrates, noted that there's this town next to a lake and someone drained the lake for whatever reason, but then it started to get a lot colder and freezing would occur more frequently. And all the little beautiful olive trees that were in this town next to the old lake suddenly died away because they couldn't survive the freezing. And it turned out that big bodies of water are really good at keeping temperatures the same. So if you're next to the beach, it's never quite too cold, it's never quite too warm. And so all the way back in 300 BC, we have evidence of someone being like, huh, if you change the environment, the climate will change a little bit. And some and things that could survive before can no longer survive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so if we skip forward ahead about 2,000 years, 1815, this French guy, Jean-Pierre Perraudin, <laughs> is going on a nice little hike around Switzerland. And he notes that he's kind of wondering, how did these giant boulders in this valley get there? Like, who on earth could move these, like, mega, mega ton boulders? And he's like, you know what? I bet that all of the ice that's on top of these mountains used to be down here and that the giant boulders were just stuck in the ice and the ice melted away and left the boulders behind. So this is our first idea that like the climate can change because until then people were thinking like the kind of earth has been the same forever and the climate can't change. Right. Everything glaciers have always been here. We're always going to have these seasons. But he had some resistance then to sort of convincing people. So take an even bigger science than scientist than him. In 1837, this guy, Agassiz, um, proposed this idea of an ice age where giant glaciers and this layer of ice surrounded the Earth, kind of like in the day before tomorrow. The day after tomorrow? The day after tomorrow. The day after tomorrow, yeah. Yeah. Where, like, New York is covered in this, like, block of ice. Mm -hmm. And at the time, around the 1830s, there was this big debate going on about can the climate change if it does in this really slow way, like the glacier slowly receding and leaving boulders? Or does it happen in this really dramatic way, like it's described in the Bible, like this Noah's flood event? And so a lot of people were of this mind that the climate is sort of like static and not doing anything. And then God will feel very wrathful and like change the environment Mm -hmm. in these big events. And the big proponent of this like biblical version of the climate was this guy Buckland in England. And he really resisted this idea of like glaciers and ice ages. But when he went to Switzerland to see it himself, he changed his mind. <laughs> and I guess England Seeing is too is flat to see guys. these dramatic things. Yeah, so <laughs> it, it goes to say like you don't have to like just take someone's word for it. In science, you can go and look for it. Yeah. You can find it. And and so now we have so now we have the idea that the climate can change. So how does it change? And it takes another brilliant French scientist this guy, Joseph Foyer, who says that the, who, he kind of says like, okay, the atmosphere that we live in is what actually keeps the earth warm because in the vacuum of space, it's super cold. And as the light from the sun goes through the atmosphere and hits the earth, it's that energy, that heat is stuck inside of the earth. So if we change the atmosphere, you can change the climate mm-hmm. on earth. So our atmosphere, right, is composed of some essential gases and the composition, like the proportion of, you know, nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide can determine how good of a blanket it is. So it's like, depending on the composition, it might be just like a nice cotton 
blanket that is pretty breathable, kind of lightweight, or, you know, if you throw in more carbon dioxide and methane, it becomes a lot more like a, a duvet. Yeah, and I'm glad <laughs> you brought up that the word CO2, yeah. because the first person who really determined that it's CO2 that can change the temperature was this brilliant woman in 1856, Eunice Newton Foote, who noted that increasing the CO2 in a certain, like, atmospheric chamber would increase the temperature. And I also want to point out that she was also a really big women's rights advocate, and she was at the 1848 Seneca Falls uh, Convention, the first women's rights convention in the U.S. And this is 1856, guys. Yeah, so... How long have we known that carbon dioxide uh, might might be a contributing factor to our, our warming climate? A while is is the answer. Um, long enough that we should have been able to do something about it. Yeah, and just a few years later, in 1859, this guy John Tyndall builds on Foote's note and confirms that CO2 and methane can affect the H2O and like temperatures inside of the atmosphere and definitely change how the atmosphere absorbs temperatures. And then a little bit later, some more scientists like actually do calculations, like how much CO2 do you have to change to change the temperature? So if you took out half of the CO2, half of the CO2 was removed from the atmosphere, we would have an ice age. If you added twice as much CO2, that is two twice as much CO2 in the atmosphere, we'd have a six degree Celsius change. This is like, this is the greenhouse effect. So this was calculated in 1896 by the scientist called Arrhenius. Uh, this is wild. So, uh, like, not only have people known that we can change the climate on Earth and that the climate does change on Earth, mm-hmm. it's just that, like, people have had definitive evidence of this for, like, over 100 years. Like, this can happen. And I think there's even newspaper clippings from around the same period that suggest that, like, maybe burning all this coal and getting all this oil out might change the environment a little bit. Over, over a period of time, if we continue to do this, then mm-hmm. we're just throwing more of the, these gases into the atmosphere. And we have... S- solid evidence that more amounts of these gases is going to lead to warmer temperatures. Yeah, and even in the 1920s and 30s, sort of this gilded age in America, people are really starting to resist this. Like, how can how can this actually be happening? No one wants to give up this, like, great opportunity to, like, build and, like, conquer the world. So so people are kind of blaming, like, oh, maybe it's the sunspots. Like, the sunspots, like, all these little <laughs> bursts from the sun. Like, maybe it burps once in a while. Like, every, and there's all, kind of all these... Yeah. It's, it's not us. It's not us. It's burps. the sun. It's not the sun. It's not the sun. But with the... But in the 1950s, scientists developed these new spectroscopic tools to, like, really, really get down to the atomic composition of the atmosphere and figure out, like, even more details. How does CO2, how do all these different gases affect the atmosphere? And people start to notice, like, oh, maybe the ocean can absorb some carbon. And as you change the temperature of the ocean, the carbon absorption in the ocean changes. And so there's more CO2 in the atmosphere. And so people are really starting to be like, oh, wow. So CO2 is playing this incredible role and so um so just quickly touching on the the ocean thing so carbon dioxide um the oceans are a big uh, sink for carbon dioxide which means they store a lot of carbon dioxide and Mm -hmm. they'll uptake and they'll they'll take up more carbon dioxide um depending on how much is in the atmosphere but this changes the chemical composition of the oceans the more carbon dioxide they store the more acid-based they get, essentially. They become more acidic on that that scale um, of acidity. So as they become more acidic and move away from being just kind of a neutral um, pH level, they become more acidic, and that becomes a lot harder for certain things to live in these more acidic oceans. So uh, a lot of things do well in kind of a neutral um, acidity, so nothing that's super acidic. But as you move 
you get more carbon dioxide, you get a higher acidity, and that makes it more difficult for a lot of things to live in the ocean. Yeah, and all the way back to the 60s, people had an appreciation for how the ocean chemistry can change how uh, like things like coral and things like fish can survive in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And so this has been around for a while. And then people really started paying attention to other gases. And I think a really classic example of climate change science and atmospheric science was um, this guy, Roland, who was noticing that this type of refrigerant called uh, freon, chlorofluorocarbon. Uh, It was in a ton of different refrigerators in the 20th century. He noticed that this little, uh, this little like tiny CFC molecule, a single molecule of CFC could take out like tens of thousands of ozone molecules. And it's these ozone molecules that compose the ozone layer, which is what blocks UV light from the sun, from completely scorching us. So we depend on this mm-hmm. ozone layer critically. Right. You think a sunburn is bad. Remove the ozone layer and you're just going to be like blasted <laughs> with radiation to the point where life would Fred not human. be able to exist. Literally, no. life would probably be eliminated if yeah. this ozone layer completely went away. And it did start to go away. There was this whole ozone hole out over Antarctica. Yeah, Australians, our mates. <laughs> they were getting worse sunburns than usual. Despite they were everything. getting absolutely fried. <laughs> That's and, actually pretty good. Uh, Thanks. Decent Australian. So none of us are Australian, but we'll give none that our us. vote of, of approval. So scientists were definitely throwing up their arms. They're like, okay, policy people, you have got to ban all of these awful pollutants. You cannot let people use all of these awful molecules that are eating up our atmosphere, turning things up, we got to ban them. Right. And this was also, these um, molecules were also present in aerosol, like hairsprays and things like that, that were Mm -hmm. in aerosol cans. Um, They found out a lot of chemicals that actually made it an aerosol, changed it from a condensed liquid or, or, you know, substance into the aerosol form um, had these ozone-depleting properties. So then they also banned a lot of that from, from production because... We definitely don't want that that hole in the ozone to get bigger. We want to repair that hole so that we don't get yeah. intense. And the CFCs were finally banned in 1989, and a Nobel Prize was awarded for identifying that molecule in 1995. But even then, through the 70s and 80s, the media was a little bit confused about, like, is there global warming? Is there global cooling? And for a period of that time, people thought, like, well, maybe it's global cooling. So maybe you can ask sort of your parents and baby boomer age people, like, can you tell me about, like, this, like, global cooling. But Mm -hmm. somewhere through the late 80s, early 90s, with some more data from ice cores, just like we learned about earlier, people definitely found a better correlation between like the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and the temperature of the earth at the time. Mm -hmm. And so this was like irrefutable evidence that if you have more CO2, the temperature will go up. Mm -hmm. And so here we are. It's uh, the 2000s. The ozone has come back. Mm -hmm. That's good news. Yeah. So we did good there, but... Uh, we, we we still have some work ahead of us. We do. So this kind of summarized the classic session is we've known as people that we can change the climate locally. We know that the climate changes globally and that we change and contribute to the climate change globally. Yes. Yeah. So it's up to us as the Dawsons to the really... The decisions we make every day. Yeah, the decisions yeah. we make truly affect everyone around us. Because mm-hmm. we all share this earth together. So... That being said, let's let's shift gears a little bit so that um, we can, you know, we've talked to you a lot about climate change, but we'll end on a bit of a lighter note. And we'll just kind of quickly tell you in our Lifting the Veil segment, like what we have had going on in our week. So um, I'll just share a quick thing. 
Uh, my students have their midterm today, so good luck to them. I know they're all exhausted and, and sick and tired and haven't been sleeping enough and are stressed, but um, I'm, I'm, I know they'll do well, and I, I know they got this. So I'm going to be busy until proctoring their exam until 8.30 in the evening tonight. It's a long day. <laughs> but um, So that's kind of what's going on. That's the big thing this week is uh, midterms definitely between getting it and proctoring it and grading it. That's It's also the midterm elections. Luck, yeah. As we're recording right now, anyway. It was, yeah, recently. Yeah. What about you, Raquel? So for me, I just got word that I'll be giving a presentation at this undergraduate conference that I'm going to, which is back in my home state, Indiana. So I'm really excited about that. Not particularly excited about the presentation itself yet, (laughs) but I will be once I'm fully prepared for it. But um, yeah, it's going to be a pretty cool experience because I'm going to be back just like less than 100 miles away from where I got my bachelor's degree and I have like a very tender place in my heart for this conference it's the annual biomedical conference for minority students and um, I went there as a post back like right before it was application season for Mm -hmm. applying to graduate programs the people that I met there, oh my goodness, they were just so encouraging mm-hmm. and supportive. Yeah. And it really like gave me a little confidence boost yeah. that I needed nice. to go into application season. That's so great. to go back and give this presentation. And be like, I did like, it. Yeah. I'm in grad school. Yeah, I'm, I look at this cool research. Yeah, yeah. that's super cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's always fun to find a conference that like you know people and you like the mm-hmm. community and you like the the environment that's been fostered and you can go back every year and yeah. It's always nice. So that that's very cool. It's very yeah. exciting. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm excited about and nervous about. Yeah. It's always yeah. There, yeah. It's a dual like exciting and and like it's always nervous nerve wracking to give a talk mm-hmm. or present your data, but it's always fun to go somewhere for a conference and yeah. see your friends and things like that. And make new friends. Yeah. That's me. What about that's you, right, Kyle? My week at grad school resembles. The famous turtle race at Brennan's Pub on Lincoln. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. I know exactly <laughs> you're LA, what you're you talking check it about. Out. This is the first I've he- I'm hearing about this. What is this? It's been there for years. It's this like pub bar that has turtle races, and it's on Lincoln. In- yeah, you can place bets on little turtles. Yeah, and it's been there for since I've lived in Los Angeles. This has been in my whole life. So, yeah. And so my, my research right now, I have about 10 turtles, and they're all racing each other. None of them are going very fast. <laughs> But one of them has to win. So yeah. I have a bunch of. So I have one project right now. I'm engineering different strains of bacteria to uh, make conductive particles and conductive wires. The goal of which would be to grow bacteria in certain patterns, like a computer pattern. Mm. But it's like a living electronic transistor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have another project where I'm trying to interrogate how. Cells integrate different noisy signals. Like if you have like five different signals coming in, like how do you actually integrate that and process that? Kind of like this cocktail party thing. Like if you're at a cocktail party, there's a lot of people talking, but you can still listen in on one conversation. But if you don't speak the language, if you're only minorly fluent, then it's really challenging to have multiple people talking at once. There's this other project I have where I'm trying to replace a gene in this bacteria called Aramonas on the chromosome with a yellow fluorescent protein so that whenever it tries to do the thing it used to do with that gene, it down just turns yellow. Nice. And then I have another project called the Sampile Project where I try to look at, in a theoretical way, self-organized criticality 
which is to say, like, <laughs> how, if you just start with the rules, if you just start a system or a game with just the rules, mm. how will the game play out? Like, you just start the game and just let it see how it goes. Like, you don't interfere with it. Sounds so, like the entire universe. So I'm trying. So I'm trying. Yeah, you set some initial conditions, and then you're like, go for it. Have at it. <laughs> so I'm trying to start. So I'm trying to simulate how a community of bacteria behave in a self critically organized way, which is a mm. big kind of physics-y thing. Yes. And it has these very specific Definitely. scaling laws, these yeah. very specific physical properties that go with systems that are self-organized and critical. Yeah. Like it's very specific phase changes, but there's not quite phase changes. <laughs> it's a lot of fun stuff. I'd like to talk about it in a future episode. But so, the, so I'm doing all these projects, and I have to see which one of these projects will actually come out on top. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, one will differentiate and kind of mm-hmm. make itself the leader. Yeah. But that that's, yeah, I mean, it's always good to have a lot of projects going on, but it's also when they're all in in the works, it's like, well. That's just, just, yeah. that's just a few. So listeners, yeah. place your bets. Yeah. <laughs> which which one's going to, you know, in a couple weeks' time, which one is Kyle going to come back to us and be like, Will it be the Sampile? Will it be the cocktail bacteria? Will it be the yellow ones? Who knows? Who knows? It's all, that's part of research is finding out. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us today. We're always happy to have you listen to our podcast. We're glad that you joined us and learned some facts about climate change in our lives and the day after tomorrow and some fun stuff today. Some a little bit of a downer, but some also lighthearted stuff. We try not totally make it too deep and dark of an episode the whole way through. So we we you know kind of intermix it with some some good facts and and not too much depressing knowledge. Um, it's, it's critical Being knowledge. With knowledge, yes, is it's critical knowledge. Knowledge you need to yes. go forth and and live your lives well, but um, nothing that's that's it's not always happy knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. Again, you are with Christian, Raquel, and Kyle, and hopefully you'll join us next week. Ooh. Thank you for joining us today on Insufficient Facts. If you love science like we do, then we invite you to join our exclusive Fact Finders Club. As a fact finder, you will get access to suggested readings, our notes on the show topics, blogs that take you behind the scenes of our lives as scientists, and access to a finder's exclusive chat space that includes Q&As with the team and the ability to submit questions and topics for future episodes. By joining, not only do you support the show and the panelists, but you'll gain access to the resources and bonus extras that we don't release anywhere else. And you'll receive a merch pack that includes an official enamel pin, show art sticker, and thank you card. To join, visit our website, insufficientfacts.com. This episode was brought to you by Super Ordinary. To listen to their show, visit their website at superordinarypod.com. And now, please enjoy a sneak peek of the show. If you're listening to this, you're one of many lucky reporters about to get the scoop of the century. You're welcome. Look, you all know who I am. This is your resident supervillain coming at you from an undisclosed location. And I think it's time everyone got a chance to hear my side of the story, sans news propaganda, don't you? I was 16 when I had the first panic attack that I can remember. You definitely don't see them coming, and you in no way, shape, or form asked for it. It closes up your chest, convinces you there's not an ounce of oxygen in the room. Your vision tunnels in. Everything sounds far away. Swallow. It's terrifying. Hey, 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 hey. Hey. You okay? It's okay. I'm right here. Just breathe. Just breathe.
You want me to turn this off? <sighs> See? I told you, it was definitely me that caused it, not some freak accident. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that now. And? And that was so cool! I can't believe you have superpowers! Super Ordinary is coming September 2018. Until then, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SuperOrdPod.